Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 20 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, June the 17th. First, I'll be talking to leading artificial intelligence expert, Dr. Katrina Wallace, about the growth of AI in business and the workplace. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist, Sarah Hunter, about the RBA, interest rates and inflation. But now let's talk to Dr. Wallace. Now, Professor Wallace, this study uh, you've done shows how AI is going to completely change Australia over the next decade. And uh, you're saying they're going to do it in four major ways. Can you explain how? Yeah, so we're at a stage where AI is the fastest growing tech sector in the world, valued at 327 billion US dollars in the last year and due to double in the next uh, three years. AI is due to be 80% of all technologies will be a foundational component within the next two to three years, will replace 85 million jobs, create 92 million jobs. So on and on, Leon, it goes about how invasive AI is going to be in, in the world. Australia is a little behind the rest of the world with regard to AI. We have a tenth of the investment per capita as a country such as the US does. But we do have things now such as a National AI Centre, which was launched in December last year. So there is a concerted effort now to start to see how AI will affect the future of work. And one of the areas we talk about is called AI or human AI teams or machine mates. And that is organisational structures with not only humans, but machine assisted, virtual assisted roles and digital employees. So this is a way fundamentally that the workplace will change is by having teammates who are who are robots, software or hardware. That, that's one. Another one is the whole responsible AI movement. So if we look at the big tech trends in the world, ethics and building responsible frameworks around technologies such as AI is the next very, very big trend. Then digital identity. So during the pandemic, we all got to know ourselves. We got to care about ourselves more. We also now expect hyper-personalization, organizations providing employees and customers almost the same experience through machine learning. And then the last one is really about diversity. So during the pandemic, we, we came across great polarization regarding vax, not vax, COVID, no COVID, 
uh, isolation, quarantine, good, bad, and, and we came into polarization. So we're now seeing that technology and AI can actually create greater polarization. And this is where we see social media in particular and automated decision-making and algorithms creating very polarized communities. And we're also, so that's a bad part of AI. And then we're also seeing this concept of united polarity, which is a, a process of bringing people back into compassionate disagreement and standing with polarized views. Completely change business, totally. Now, what particular sectors would be most prone to using AI? I would imagine banks and retail, for example, would be prime areas. Yes, you are spot on. So uh, banking sector is one of the most advanced, retail also. But interestingly, and this is one we always forget, Leon, is manufacturing. So manufacturing has been using AI for decades and robotics for decades, but we, we don't think about them as being progressive. And in fact, in Australia, last year, I did a big study on responsible AI, study of 400 organisations. And the, unfortunately, there was only 8% of Australian-based organisations who are mature with regard to responsible AI. But manufacturing led the way there. The issue too is that employees will suddenly have robot workmates. That could be good and it could be bad. I mean, it could be good insofar that the AI could actually come up with ideas and help them work through ideas. But AI could also supplant them as well. Yeah, that's the big thing. It's either augmentation which is really what we want we want to see the machines augmenting humans and what we know Leon now is that in in a given week for any average employee they spend a day a week searching for information they need to do their jobs so AI can take care of that straight away we get eight or ten hours back a week 40 percent of most people's jobs is admin routine tasks all can be done by AI so the, the great thing is that really when these machines and software come into play, we humans can be more human and focus on creative work, back to basic science, uh, innovation, human relationships, problem solving, and let the machines do the mundane work. That's really what we want. However, we also do know that these machines will replace jobs. And over the next two years, the World Economic Forum predicts it will be 85 million jobs will be completely replaced by robots and machines. And it is the first time we're really seriously thinking about the universal basic income coming in. I mean, we had a little bit of experience with this with COVID, but this is the first time the international community is thinking that there will be such vast displacement of jobs that this is a sensible thing. And the disturbing statistic that goes along with this is 90% of those jobs that may be displaced or replaced by software hardware robots 90 percent of them are the jobs of women minorities and youth because they're the entry level and the admin and the service jobs so you know it's a big question about who's leading the responsible path through all this and uh where do these people go to once say a person who's worked for years on the checkout counter at coles or woolworths or any hmm. supermarket, is suddenly hmm. replaced by a machine. Where do they go? And do they need additional skills? How do we take care of these people? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure where they go. And I hope that in particular government and also these big tech companies that are building these ma machines and, and software have the responsibility and, and obligation, I feel, 
to to go and do retraining and so the jobs that will come the 92 million jobs that will be created by the coming of these type of uh, emerging tech are to do with data digital programming engineering but they also still the creative fields so we will see a rise in the need for creatives and designers so perhaps if they're not technically trained the people who are displaced could actually come into some more creative roles uh, there's also a lot more about storytelling on the back of data and things that come out but it's a big question and it is a concern that that retraining it's not obvious the the federal government is putting some money to it but we don't see it as a really strong strategy across the business community at the moment so it's a concern it's, and this would be actually a global concern, wouldn't it? I mean, this is not just affecting Australia. It would be affecting all the Western economies, or for that matter, economies across Asia as well. Right. Well, yes, absolutely. So China is actually the largest AI producing and using country in the world, followed by India, uh, then by America. So it's very, in our region, very powerful AI countries. And so uh, I hope that all of these countries, governments are thinking about this retraining. And I, it's just not a big topic that's talked about. And that remains challenging for me. Do you see governments addressing this long-term? Because it will become an issue. Yes, it will become an issue. Look, the great news is that the previous government did put in this national AI centre now headed up by a woman called Stella Sola, and she's very good. So the whole strategy of the national AI centre is around building Australia as a responsible, trusted brand in AI that has diversity and inclusion at its core. So because that is their mandate, I believe Stella will really champion that this retraining is done and the vulnerable sectors that are affected by AI will be addressed. I, I think we do have someone watching that and we'll, we'll wait and see. This is interesting because I, I actually wonder how many people actually realise what's going on. Because, I mean, I saw this, well, when, when Donald Trump was in power and he was saying mm. China is causing all the unemployment in America. And I was watching this and thinking, no, it's AI. It's AI. You know, machines are replacing workers. And yeah. why can't you wake up to that? And a, a lot of people don't realise that. And I'm just wondering when people are going to realise this. Yeah. And look, what is also coming now, Leon, is even more than AI, is the Web3 and Metaverse. And if, you, if people are not aware of what AI is doing and AI has been really in place for a good 10 years, then they're going to be very, very surprised with the, the speed and the invasiveness of, of the metaverse and metaverse technologies, all of the, the fully immersive 3D virtual world. Because if you think about it, we, we're familiar with the, the physical world that we're in. We're familiar with the digital world that you and I are interacting in now, but the virtual world, you can't see it unless you have either AR or VR goggles. So all of this is coming now at a rapid rate. And, and even though you and I are talking about AI and responsible AI, what's coming is much more frightening because what the metaverse is, is fully immersive 3D worlds run and owned by the tech giants and tech platform companies with no government, no laws, no rules, no regulations. So we're talking here about virtual reality. We are, virtual reality and augmented reality. So that's well ahead of us. 
It's right here. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, Professor Wallace, thank you very much for your time. It's fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter. Well, Sarah, the RBA has raised uh, interest rates by 50 basis points. We're now at 0.85%, which surprised most economists. No one was expecting that. Now, there's talk of another 50 basis point rate rise next time around, next month. So we can take up to 1.35%. Where do you see this heading? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was certainly a pretty sharp change in stance from the May meeting, which is why it caught pretty much all the economists off surprise, my, uh, myself included. I, I would certainly wouldn't discount a 50 basis point hike next month. I think in general, over the next few meetings, we'll probably see cumulatively at least another 100 basis points, so one percentage point from where we are now. And I think by the end of the year, we're probably looking at you know 2% or even a bit above, and it'll depend a little bit on what they do with that spare 15 basis points they've got in their back pocket, as it were, given they started from point one rather than zero. But yeah, my read on the statement was that they think the economy is in pretty good shape. The national accounts data for March quarter certainly suggested that. And they seem pretty confident that households in particular can weather some of the headwinds they're facing, not only from rising uh, interest rates, mortgage rates, but also from cost of living pressures. And they're looking to really normalize the cash rate pretty quickly to you know around about sort of that two, uh, 2%, maybe a bit above. And then maybe they'll take a pause and see where we're at. But yeah, certainly a big pivot from where they were even a month ago, never mind a couple of months ago. Well, I noticed the futures market is talking about 3.5% by mid-2023. Yeah, I think I'm still, I haven't changed my view that I think that is still a bit too uh, aggressive and, and too hawkish a stance. I think that there's enough headwinds facing the economy just from what we can see now and from the cash rate getting up to give yeah, that sort of two, maybe two and a half percent by the middle of 23 range. Fundamentally, you know, the uh, when, when you take the fiscal settings are coming off and we know that and we can see that notwithstanding a little bit of extra juice that will come through with the Lumito um, increased payment, which will start to hit households as they do their tax returns and, and some of the uh, reweighting of um, social security benefits, which will also kick through from 1st of July. So even setting those to one side, cost of living pressures are, are definitely going to be quite substantial as we get into the middle of this year and, and through towards the end. I mean, you know, headline inflation could well get uh, close to, if not up to 7%. So that's quite a long way up and that'll be quite a an eating into household budgets business investment i think the momentum there at least is likely to slow a bit and uh, obviously the international environment is challenging and particularly around our services exports that recovery is still very challenging right now so i think there's enough headwinds there plus rising interest rates i don't think we'll need to have the cash rate up at three percent to start to see inflation coming back towards the target band which is obviously what the rba are going are trying to achieve it's not going to get there next year i don't think we won't have inflation back below three percent in 23 but i think we'll definitely be moving in that direction and that will be enough for the board to be happy that they don't need to go all the way up to three and a half percent well governor lowe made the point that inflation had risen faster or higher than expected. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's part of the turnaround. And uh, I think part of that is obviously coming from what we're seeing around domestic electricity prices, which we didn't know about a month ago, or the challenges there. And from talking to experts in that field that I work with, and which is an absolute 
pleasure that as a situation is not going to resolve in the near term so that's a headwind we have to keep facing and we can see you know there's further upward pressure coming in from the international economy you know more sanctions on Russia which are from an economic perspective effectively further tightening that commodity supply piece and that's a supply shock a negative supply shock that we have to face and we have to wear and that manifests itself in inflation but effectively it's a real income shock you know we can fuel is more expensive fundamentally oil natural gas other commodities are more expensive food as well and we just have to wear that and and incorporate that into a sort of view on the economy and that also necessitates a faster pace of rate rises so I think those things are coming together and that's what Governor Lowe was referring to and and that's yeah as you say another trigger for why they've gone quicker. Yeah I mean the other the other issue too I think is uh, I mean we're talking to businesses now uh, their big issue is supply chains Mm. and and so you know stuff is not you know stuff that might they might have been paying five hundred dollars for suddenly now they're paying two thousand dollars for them. And, and yeah. so, and, and and they have to wait longer. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm I'm kind of wondering whether whether businesses are going to get to a stage where they have to um, become more transparent. They're going to have to say, look, where stuff is slow arriving, so you might have to wait a few months till you get it. Mm. And that's going to raise prices as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the other big shock that we sort of haven't talked about yet, but that's in that space is obviously what's happening in China around uh, COVID. And I think what's really interesting here for me is that we are now starting to see the impact of the lockdowns that they were experiencing in, you know, sort of started in, in March time, but mostly through April and May. And even though they're, they're starting to come out of some of those lockdowns, Shanghai has partially opened up because of the sort of, you know, the natural delays through that shipping supply chain it's only really now that we start to see the impact of the fact that they weren't able to produce as much as anticipated in, in April and in May in particular so I absolutely agree that that's a challenge that um, we'll face in the near term but I think also importantly about that zero COVID stance and looking at where China is more broadly you know we know Omicron is incredibly infectious uh, we've, experienced, we've got first-hand experience of that here in Australia but unlike here our vaccination rates in China are, are not high enough uh, through the general population and the there's obviously the zero COVID stance is still very much in place. We, most countries have moved on from that. China hasn't yet. So the idea that China could possibly get through the entirety of the rest of this year without needing to go back into some sort of lockdown in some parts of the country because they get further outbreaks, I think that that's not reasonable to expect that. So we should be planning for more disruption. Even if we don't know the where and the when yet, it's, it's probably going to happen at some point. So yeah, all of that coming through in terms of inflationary pressures as well. We've fundamentally, we've got a situation globally here in Australia where demand is just running really strong relative to supply. It's running hotter and we need to rebalance that. And that's ultimately what central banks are trying to do. And to do that, we have to, some of those supply shocks are, there and we can't do much about those certainly from an Australian perspective and so we have to dampen down that domestic demand piece that's exactly what the RBA are doing by raising interest rates ultimately that is the transmission channel so it's that sort of position that they're looking at and they're responding to. Well the other issue too Governor Lowe kind of vaguely alludes to it but uh, the issue is I mean, this is coming from two for, two sources. I mean, you've got a global pandemic and you've got a war. And so there's a whole lot of uncertainties here. I mean, no one knows where inflation is going to end up and how long it's going to be and how high it's going to be. Mm. And, and so that's going to be a huge issue for central banks all over the world. 
Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's an incredibly challenging time for them. Uh, and as you say, we don't know how these things are going to completely play out. I mean, you, you never know that completely, but um, I don't disagree at all. The level of uncertainty right now is very, very heightened compared to, you know, the, the sort of past in and for much of the past not even just the recent past I, I think for me what is really interesting through all of this is that central banks have got a, they've got a really tough job at the moment they're they're trying to thread an economist using lots and lots of phrases to <laughs> uh, colloquial phrases to describe this but you know thread a needle or walk a tightrope or hit that goldilocks outcome all of that together what we're saying is that they're trying to cool things down enough that they do keep a handle on those inflationary pressures, particularly thinking about the inflationary pressures that come endogenously, if you like, through the system. So this is thinking about that wage inflation expectations piece. That's the thing they can control, you know, especially if you're a small open economy. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com like um, Australia, we have no control over what happens globally, really. We have to accept global commodity price moves. They they flow into the country as pluses and minuses, and we, we can't really control those. Similarly, what happens in China, obviously, that's a shock that we have to observe. We have to um, accept the impact of it. We can't really do anything about it. But what we can uh, have some control over and what the, the uh, RBA have got some control over is what happens in terms of the domestic piece, thinking about inflation expectations, wage setting, and, and how that dynamic plays through. And so what they're really looking to do is dampen things down, cool things down enough that they we don't have inflation expectations resetting permanently higher, that we don't get into a sort of wage price spiral type situation. But they don't really want to cool things down too much that they generate, you know, a contraction in the economy or even a recession if we just use the standard two quarters of negative growth definition. Central banks globally, this is what they're battling right now. We are no different, but it's a real fine line. And the uncertainty that you mentioned just makes it that much harder again it was always going to be hard but now we don't know how some of these things are going to play out which is a layer on top yeah i mean this is this is quite this is quite a, a problem because what we do know is the ability of households and businesses to weather the inflationary storm declines the longer it lasts so budgets will gradually tighten savings will deplete and but the issue too is that if it lasts too long that will tip us into recession yeah, absolutely. And that's, that is exactly that. The challenge is how this plays through. And, um, and it's that sort of rebalancing piece if we do get continued. So to go back to what I was saying earlier on, right now we have this 
globally a situation where demand is stronger than supply. When we talk about labour shortages, for instance, we talk about rising wages, businesses trying to compete to get workers in. Fundamentally, what they've got is a situation where they want to get more work done than they're able to uh, because they can't, in, you know, they can't get the labour that they need or maybe they can't get the materials that they need if it's a, or the machinery and equipment if, that, if that's the kind of work that they do. But it's all fundamentally part of that one and the same thing that the amount of work they want to do, the demand, is outstripping supply right now. And if we continue to see um, negative supply shocks, so the, you know, something happens that further destructs you know, Ukraine, Russia's ability to interact in the global economy, and, and we know actually some of that is coming down the track because we know there's going to be further sanctions on Russia. If we do see further really substantial outbreaks of COVID in China and the response from the authorities is the same, that they go for widespread lockdowns and they uh, close down businesses, shut factories and what have you, that's another big negative supply shock. If that continues to happen, then the gap between demand where it is now and supply will continue to open up and it's more becomes more and more likely that the policy response needed to tackle that does result in, in potentially a recession in you know, say in many parts of the world, not, not particularly in Australia. So that is that is the challenge right now in a nutshell that central bankers everywhere are facing. And as I say, they're trying to engineer the Goldilocks outcome of slow it down enough but not too much do they manage to achieve that what we're going to find out over the next uh, 12 18 months but it's very hard and i i wouldn't be at all surprised if at least one of the major economies globally uh, major western economies goes into recession over the next uh, 12 months because trying to get that goldilocks outcome for everybody is really difficult really really difficult well those are quite striking and, and worrying Words. Well, and I'm not the only one saying them as well. I don't. I should say I'm. I'm generally an optimistic person, so I'm. You know, this is definitely a challenging period. But we had the OECD, for example, come out just this week with their um, forecast update, their economic outlook, and for the UK, for instance, they're now forecasting zero percent growth in GDP in 2023, and for it to be a zero number like that that is very definitely flirting with a recession. Yeah. Um, you could easily get one quarter of negative growth in there, almost you know, almost certainly if you're going to get zero overall. Uh, the idea that you've got a couple back to back, absolutely that's possible. So I'm, not the, I'm certainly not the only economist saying this. And, 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 <laughs> of course, uh, and of course, you've got the World Bank warning about stagflation. Exactly, exactly. And it's the same, same phenomenon, same, uh, same manifestation that we're talking about here. So it's, um, it's definitely a challenge, I think, to perhaps maybe hopefully give a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel or uh, to at least acknowledge part of what's driven where we are right now it is partly very much a story of that strength in demand and the fiscal response um, to covid and the recovery from that or to put it another way i think that even if we didn't have the conflict in europe didn't have you know major covid outbreaks in china creating all those supply chain disruptions and what have you i still think we'd have an inflation problem right now in that we'd be above target. And that really um, anchors back to the strength of the fiscal response and the, you know, the sort of shock that coming out of the pandemic created in terms of shifting demand patterns. But that fiscal boost that all governments put in place all over the world, all Western governments, because they could to help their economies through the pandemic, I think we can all agree that was the right thing to do. That has created this really strong recovery so it's not just a a doom and gloom supply side story although that's taking up a lot of the attention at the moment there is you know if you like a positive in all of this in that we are you know we're operating with an unemployment rate below four percent all those other indicators that tell us we're pretty close to full employment 
that's uh, you know a demand positive demand story and that's um, what's generated a, a decent slug if you like of the inflation that we're seeing well Sarah thank you very much for your time again thank you so what's happening in the news well there are now fears the world is teetering on the brink of a global recession after horror new inflation data from the US that has sent a chill through stock markets around the globe the pain is set to get even worse for the Australian economy after the US recorded its highest rate of inflation at 8.6% since 1981, topping what economists thought was a peak in March and stoking fears that the global economy is slowly falling into a recession. More concerning was the momentum. Month on month, consumer prices rose by 1%, well above the 0.3% in April. Inflation figures have surprised to the high side, pushing investors to increase bets on a 75 basis point increase at this week's meeting, pricing in interest rate futures shows. Those bets hardened on Monday afternoon following a report in the Wall Street Journal suggesting the larger move was now in play. Things were already looking sketchy on the Australian Stock Exchange after a week that saw a higher than expected cash rate rise. As there's little relief in sight, as many economists expect the RBA to bump up interest rates by 50 basis points at their next meeting in July, following a surprise 50 basis points hike this month. While inflation and interest rises are on the rise here in Australia, things are looking much worse in the US. Its red-hot inflation rise is showing few signs of cooling, putting its Federal Reserve, the world's most influential central bank, on track to, to continue its aggressive interest rate increases to help cool high prices that are challenging Joe Biden's presidency. With Russia's war in, on Ukraine continuing to pressure global fuel and food prices and amid ongoing supply chain uncertainties due to COVID-19 lockdowns in Asia, analysts now say the expected easing of inflationary pressures will take much longer to materialise. The US central bank already had signalled plans for more big increases in the benchmark borrowing this week and next month, but chances are rising that the Fed might have to be even more aggressive, which increases the risk the economy might tip into a recession. The latest inflation report, the last major data point before the Fed's policy meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday, also doubts its hopes central bankers will be able to call a ceasefire in September ahead of key congressional elections, where Biden's Democrats are widely expected to suffer damaging losses. And fears the world is barreling towards 1970s-style stagflation has seen vicious selling that has pushed global shares into a bear market, wiping trillions of dollars in value from blue chips as worries mount that aggressive central bank policy tightening would tip the world into recession. Wall Street has plunged as investors took flight after consumer inflation in the US reached a 40-year high on Friday, with worries that aggressive interest rate rises could lead to a recession. No region has evaded the pressure. European shares fell 2.4% to drag the Eurostock's 600 benchmark, 16% below its January peak. An FTSC index of Asian markets, excluding Japan, fell 1% to bring its decline from the top in February last year to 26.4%. The S&P ASX 200 has dived to its, day, to its worst day in more than two years, as frantic selling wiped nearly $100 billion from the share market weighed down by heavy losses across all alerted share market sectors on fears of a global recession. It marks the bourse's worst session since the COVID-19 crash in March 2020 and pushes the index to its lowest level since February last year, according to Comsec. And the total value of cryptocurrencies dropped $1 trillion as Bitcoin and other crypto assets plunged in price. The fall marked a new low that has seen more than $2 trillion wiped off the value of cryptocurrencies since the peak in November 2021. According to crypto data website CoinMarketCap, the market capitalization or total value of cryptocurrencies reached a peak of $2,977 billion on November the 10th, just $23 billion short of $3 trillion. Since then, the value of cryptocurrencies has fallen in steps with small recoveries to less than $977 billion, a fall over $2 trillion since the peak. The last trillion dollars in value has been lost in just 60 days. Overall, cryptocurrency market cap was over $2 trillion on April the 13th. 
The recent decline has been dramatic. Bitcoin, the largest cryptocurrency, and is now trading at below $24,000. It was as high as $67,000 in November. Investors in cryptocurrencies are facing several drivers of, of negative sentiment. Increasingly, cryptocurrencies have become correlated with traditional stock markets, the Nasdaq in particular, rather than being an alternative asset or hedge. The interest rate rises from the US Federal Reserve to try to curb inflation have pushed prices down in markets generally. Combine that with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has made more investors more risk-averse, and 2022 has been a rough year for crypto. And home buyers should expect higher interest rates, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has warned, as a bank will do whatever it takes to get inflation back within its target range. Lowe admitted in a rare interview that the RBA expects inflation to hit 7% by December, well above the 6% forecast by the bank just six weeks ago. The last time inflation rose more than 7% was in the mid-1990s as the country was entering a recession and the RBA was cutting the cash rate from 17% in response. This year, inflation has risen amid global supply chain pressures due in part to the war in Ukraine and COVID-19 lockdowns in China. While the unemployment rate has fallen to near 50-year lows and wages have begun to lift, the RBA governor said he expected a more normal cash rate to sit above 2.5%, but said he could not predict how swiftly the bank would move to get it there. He said it would be determined by the data the board had at its disposal every month. And the minimum wage will be lifted $1.05 an hour from $20.33 base from July the 1st, an increase of 5.2% to $21.38 an hour, slightly above inflation. Workers on award rates will go up 4.6%, a cut in your wages, with a minimum $40 week increase for workers on award rates below $869.60 per week. The Fair Work Commission said its decision would affect more than 2.7 million workers, as well as other employees, on enterprise agreements and other pay settings. And Australian consumer sentiment fell to its lowest level since the pandemic lows in June, due to surging inflation and a large increase in the cash rate. The Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment dropped 4.5% to 86.4 in June from May. The survey detail showed a loss of confidence in the economic outlook, both in Australia and abroad. The report highlighted a steady increase in the proportion of consumers who expect significant increase in interest rates over the next 12 months. And thousands of Australian farmers are feeling the pressure from costs rising all along the supply chain due to the energy costs triggered by Russia's war on Ukraine. Farmers are not only paying more for electricity to power their operations, but are facing increases in the price of fuel, fertiliser, packaging and more. Fertiliser prices, which typically cost $50,000 a year, have doubled. Transport costs are 35 to 40% more than what they were a year ago. The issue has seen the National Farmers Federation and 29 other peak bodies calling for short and long-term solutions to moderate energy prices and a faster transition to clean energy. High commodity prices and favourable seasonal conditions are providing a buffer, but farm gate prices will drop back, production will change with the seasons, and at current electricity input prices, a lot of farms will be running at a loss. Energy prices are far from the only issue food producers are contending with. COVID's closed borders have created a labour shortage amid the absence of backpackers and migrant workers the horticultural sector relies on. Dairy, horticulture and meat are among the most energy-intensive agriculture sectors, with supply chain cost increases contributing to food inflation at the supermarket checkout. And the Prudential regulator has put banks on notice that they must be ready to rein in risky home loans made to highly indebted customers after new data showed the number of mortgages to borrowers with high debt-to-income ratios eased from record levels following its targeted action last month. In a letter to banks, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority outlined new requirements saying lenders need to have systems in place to limit growth in high-risk residential mortgage lending, such as loans at high debt-to-income multiples or high loan-to-valuation ratios. The warning came after APRA's latest data for the March quarter revealed that 23.1% of new mortgages had a debt-to-income ratio of six times or more. 
the level considered risky by the prudential regulator. The volume of high debt-to-income mortgages came down from a record of 24.3% in the December quarter, but remained significantly higher than a year ago, when they stood at 18.9% of the total. And regulators have accused energy companies of driving energy power shortages to receive larger taxpayer handouts. Power companies pulled more than 6.5 gigawatts of electricity supply out of the national markets, triggering warnings of blackouts as the grid experienced acute stress. It follows the Australian energy market operator imposing a price cap across multiple states, prompting companies to withhold power in a bid to be ordered to generate energy, which in turn makes them eligible for compensation. Power producers, including AGL and Origin, have been protesting that they're struggling to compete due to high coal and gas prices though their stock prices are up 42%, nearly 18% respectively. Households and businesses will ultimately be hit with higher power bills to help to compensate the energy companies. WA, meanwhile, unveiled plans to shut its last coal-fired power unit, the 854-megawatt Muja power station, before the end of the decade. And one of the country's major coal plants has lost half its capacity, adding to the mounting woes in a national electricity market teetering on the edge of widespread blackouts. NG Australia's confirmation that the Lawn Power Station, which provides 20% of Victoria's electricity needs, had lost two of its four units, came as market operators released repeated warnings of potential blackouts in Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia. Officials believe there is almost 4,000 megawatts of electricity supply sitting on the sidelines of the market, and the Australian Energy Regulator on the Tuesday took the unprecedented step of writing to generators suggesting some may be withholding power to manipulate pricing. Set prices for wholesale power have now been imposed in all four main regions in the national electricity market as the energy crunch worsens and shortages loom. Power could be tight for the next few days, with a shortfall of energy in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland. Shortfalls are set to hit Queensland and New South Wales, with residents urged to turn down heaters and switch off appliances. And while most Australians are preparing to be hit with skyrocketing gas prices, a shocking report has revealed most of the profits will be going to foreign owners. Researchers at the Australian Institute have conducted a deep dive analysis of companies on the Australian Stock Exchange and found 95.7% are foreign owned. This means Australian equity is just 4.3%. With 80% of Australia's gas being exported out of the country, households and businesses are experiencing price shock with apocalyptic rises in energy prices nationwide. The Australian energy market operator has been forced to step in and cap gas prices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane to $40 per gigajoule, but is still five times higher than last year's prices. However, the frustrations won't stop there, with a bombshell revelation in the Australia Institute's report that most of the jacked-up prices will be flowing overseas. The Australia Institute says households are paying a fortune to compete with the gas export industry being run by foreign-owned companies who pay little or no tax. And research by Choice indicates Bunnings, Kmart and the good guys are using facial recognition technology in a bid to crack down on shoplifters. The consumer group asked 25 major retailers whether they were using facial recognition technology and examined their privacy policy. Bunnings, Kmart and the good guys appeared to be the only three in the group capturing the biometric data of their customers. Kmart and Bunnings stores had small, inconspicuous signs at stores informing customers about the use of the technology. The collection of biometric data in such a manner may be in breach of the Privacy Act. Kmart and Bunnings said the technology was used to identify people with a history of theft and antisocial behaviour, while the good guys denied using it. 76% of respondents to a choice survey said they didn't know retailers were using facial recognition. And Sky News Australia has become a key global hub for climate misinformation, according to a new report. 
Analysis by UK think tank, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, found the channel was a key content hub for influencers, sceptics and outlets that make up a global network of climate science deniers. The Rupert Murdoch-owned Sky News Australia channel ranked highly for traction, spreading climate misinformation to a global audience through social media networks. Sky News Australia News Corps' stable of newspaper columnists had formed a system of content production and distribution that promoted scepticism of climate science and fear or confusion around mitigation efforts. The analysis showed that before 2017, Sky News posted an average 25 tweets a month on climate-related issues, but now published an average of more than 100 posts a month. Canadian climate science denier Patrick Moore collected 16,000 retweets for sharing a Sky News segment where former host Alan Jones described climate activists as selfish, badly educated, virtue signalling little turds. The report identified the five most popular sources for content shared among climate delayers were the Daily Mail, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph and the blog What's Up With That? News Corps last year flagged it would reverse its opposition against climate action but has largely failed to follow through. And the Australian Financial Complaints Authority has had to pause 2,447 complaints involving claims worth around $376 million because the firms involved are insolvent. AFCA reported that there are 44 financial firms involved in the complaints, all of them impacted by insolvency. On top of that, there were 306 unpaid determinations worth $14.7 million associated with 28 insolvent firms. The firms involved in the polar's complaints include 14 financial planners, 6 managed investment scheme operators, 4 funeral insurance providers, 4 securities dealers, 2 derivatives dealers, 2 foreign exchange dealers and 1 corporate advisor. The 2 foreign exchange dealers account for the biggest claims worth a total of $266.8 million. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Domain's Chief Revenue Officer, John Fung, to discuss how new technology is shifting into the emerging property market. And I'll be talking to indeed economist Callum Pickering to discuss the latest jobs figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.